The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 12th, the back to work and back to school edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and I'm the author of How to Be a Family, which comes out next week. So I'm also currently 100% an insane person. Also, I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who is 12. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I am a writer, a cultural critic. I'm also one of Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting columnists. And I'm the mother to Naima, who is six. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire. And I am mom to Henry, who is 18, my son Teddy, who is 16 and a half, and my stepdaughter Lily, who is 19. I'm excited to say that Jamila is here in the D.C. studio with me. Happy homecoming, Jamila. You're back to D.C. I'm back in D.C. Just for one week only, but I'm going to treasure it. Today on the show, we've got a question from a mom who's about to go back to work and is freaking out just a little. Plus, a question about how to keep grandparents from going all gender essentialist on your baby. Of course, we'll have triumphs and fails, we'll have recommendations, and let's start today with some triumphs and some fails. Jamila, what do you have today? A triumph or a fail? Uh, I'd like to say that I have a triumph. Wouldn't we all? Um, (laughs) I've been um, back and forth between New York and Los Angeles uh, quite a bit this summer, and it's finally coming to an end. Uh, I have an actual move date of uh, September 30th, so I will be living in the same city, in the same house, 50% of the time with my actual child, (laughs) so I can really be a parenting podcaster because I'll be parenting again uh, for the first time (laughs) in a while. But um, I just got back, actually, from uh, a few days out in L.A. hanging out with a kid, and she's happy and healthy and whole, and I'm giving myself a triumph because um, we had such a really great visit, and I I leave each time feeling sad and conflicted and, you know, was this the wrong thing to do? Should I have been out there at the same time as her dad and her stepmom? Um, but she really seems to be adjusting to life, and she's happy, and she still loves me. Um, so I, I just feel like I'm, I'm giving myself a general triumph, like I am successfully parenting as of this moment in history that, next week that's awesome. that could change <laughs> who knows, i'm going but... back on monday so who knows <laughs> who knows but for now all is well no after the summer that you've had that seems like uh the the foundation of plans to live in the same city as your child seems like great yes yeah yes. Yeah, yeah yeah uh excellent rebecca how about you I've got a triumph. It's uh, a triumph by proxy, kind of. Um, I've talked a lot on this podcast about my relatively fraught relationship with my mom, and everything has changed. It has done a complete 180. Right now, my relationship with my mom is totally awesome because she has a boyfriend. Oh, And now listen, I may be overstepping, I may be overstating the relationship. I'm not saying either one of their names on this podcast, obviously, Yeah. but (laughs) she started seeing this guy a couple of months ago and our entire relationship is completely different in all of the right ways. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, For one of their dates, like they've been meeting up at these different like very quaint places around New England, like uh, one of their dates, they met up to go to like 
an antique show and one of their dates they met up to do it like this little like small town like festival and one of their dates a couple weeks ago was at one of the state fairs which happens to be in my town a mile and a half from my house and she had sent me a text and said uh, oh maybe after we're done with the fair we have dinner plans like way over in Vermont at like 6 p.m. but like maybe we could stop by and see you guys and I can introduce you and I was like sure yeah I'll just be home working whatever just come on by. I get a text at like three o'clock and she's like, I'm so sorry, we're not going to be able to make it over. Uh, We have dinner plans and we have to rush over there. And I'm like, if you had any idea, like the idea that my mom would be like so busy and happy that she wouldn't want to like barge into my house (laughs) on on, on on like a random Sunday to like introduce a total stranger to me and like give them a tour of my house and like, you know, do all the stuff that she normally likes to do, which is totally over the top. Like it was incredible. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. We'll just catch you next time. Um, I just had surgery this week and I have gotten very helpful uh, loving text messages, nothing fraught, nothing like, oh, dear God, how are you going to get through the week? But things like, oh, hey, let me know if I can help. Aww. I'm really busy. I'm going out to dinner tonight, like kind of stuff. Very normal and awesome. And I'm just like so thrilled because I do feel like uh, my mom's having something else to focus on that is making her happy is making everyone happy. It's a total trickle down parenting effect. So it's awesome. It's my triumph by proxy. Good on you, mom, for getting a boyfriend. I hope it works out because this is really great what we have going on right now. (laughs) Good for Rebecca's mom. We are um, sending all the best wishes for this relationship to continue. Does he have a friend for my mom? Uh, My mom's also available. It changes everything, guys. It changes everything. Uh, All right. Very nice. I um, have a fail, but first I'm going to deliver an update on a previous triumph. Um, Good update. Yeah, yeah. Update. We are now two-thirds of the way through season two of Buffy. Mm -hmm. The girls were very upset about Angel. They're very angry about Jenny (laughs) Callender. I could not be happier. It's going great. It's like, it's the greatest. Uh, But I have a fail uh, for this week. Um, It is back-to-school season. So I don't know if this is true of y'all, but for parents in my house, uh, it is back to trying to get your kids to tell you what happened at school season. Yep. Um, Which means that once again, I am failing to get Lyra to tell me a goddamn thing that is happening at her school. And it's not really – the fail isn't that I'm failing to get her to tell me anything. The fail is that we are driving her crazy. Like she actually said that. She said, mom, dad – You are driving me crazy with this. Uh, But I can't stop myself from just like grilling her, like not not grilling her because I think she did something wrong or something went wrong. But I'm just like so desperately hungry for details of this new world she's in. She's in high school and it's a whole new school and there are all new kids and opportunities and activities and things to be nervous about and things to be excited about. And I am just fucking desperate to know anything about her day. (laughs) Um, like, right. If they, if they like Truman showed her high school experience, I would like quit my job and just watch that 24 hours a day. Mm. Um, but so she gets home and we just like pepper her with questions and she makes it like 20 seconds, like two questions max before she's just like, Oh, get off my back. Uh, but we're not satisfied yet. And long ago on this show, in a very, very early episode, um, 
Allison recommended to me playing uh, Two Truths and a Lie with your kids as a way to get them to just tell you any fucking thing about their day, which we do at dinner still. We have done it for years, and we do it at dinner. It it works She for now. She, like, grudgingly puts up with it. But even that, I can tell, is, like, it's a ticking time bomb, and I just need to let it be. We just need to fucking let it be, but we cannot let it be. <laughs> we want more. Hmm. That is our fail hmm. that we are driving our child bananas with our bullshit. All right. Before we move on, let's uh, talk some business. As always, if you have a question you would like us to answer on the air, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, which is what my children are being to me when they don't ask me about my day. Or you can email us at slate.com. Please sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter. It is the best place to find out about everything we're doing on the parenting front. New episodes of Mom and Dad are fighting, new editions uh, of Care and Feeding, all the other great parenting columns we do. Plus, it's just like a little personal letter from me that I send out every Thursday that's just like full of bullshit. It's 100% bullshit. Total bullshit. Sign up. It's great. Uh, you can sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. The next one goes out Thursday. Bullshit full. Also, check out our Facebook presence. <laughs> Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Uh, it's a really great community. It is now 12,000 users strong, yet we moderate it. And nearly every day, Gabe Roth kicks some schmuck out for being a dick. Um, so it doesn't really get out of control. Gabe does a good job. I, I like kicking people out, too. We got lots of people kicking people out. It's great. Um, you get lots of great answers to questions, great support from other parents. Uh, plus, you can respond to the episode uh, or pose questions for us to answer. In Slate Plus today, we are talking about the parenting books that have really stuck with us in our parenting lives. Uh, so for a little quick sneak peek of what you'd hear, if you have Slate Plus, listen now. I, I just didn't want anything to do with that. And I was hesitant for a really long time. I don't know why. I think part of it is just there's so many parenting books that just seem to speak to experiences that are unlike mine. Amazing. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. That's our membership program. It is a great way to support all the work that Slate does. For just 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad Are Fighting and your other favorite Slate podcasts. Less favorite than this one, but still favorite. And of course, in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of the podcast with bonus segments and lots of other great benefits. So support Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Support Slate. Go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. We are going to answer two listener questions on the show today. Our very first one was emailed. <clears throat> emailed? Our very first one was emailed to us. If you would like to email us a question, send it to momanddad at slate.com, and maybe your words will be read by the one and only Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. I'm the stepmom to an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and a new mom to a baby boy. 10 weeks old. I love my family. Being home has been chill, but not magical. I love bonding with my baby and, for the most part, still having the physical energy and emotional bandwidth for other areas of life. It's not all roses. Sometimes I don't leave the house for days and it can feel isolating. I'm returning to work in 10 days. I'm a nurse practitioner. I enjoy my job and I find it really satisfying. Before maternity leave, I often left the office late and went in on weekends. I don't want to do that. I have no concept of time, never have, and often end up working late with no idea how. 
But now I will have to leave on time to make it to daycare pickup. My partner works evenings. I am also going to pump twice a day. Any advice on streamlining? Time management? Prioritizing pumping when I'm crunched for time? I guess my bigger question is that, right now, I don't see how returning to work is possible. I'm home now, and the laundry is piled up, the sink is full, the trash barely makes it to the curb, and there are diapers everywhere. My partner does a lot. Before I went on maternity leave, he did 85% of household chores and a large majority of yard work. How do we keep the house running? Not spotless, but functional, when I return to work. How do I protect my time? I have so many practical and emotional worries surrounding returning to work. I feel uncertain and scared. This is the hard part that no one talks about. Please help. First of all, congratulations on your wonderful new baby. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to highlight, in starting to respond to this question, um, one point you made uh, toward the end of this letter, which is you determine you define keeping your house running as reaching a level of not spotless but functional. I would like to commend you on a great recognition of how having a baby requires that you start to lower your standards for things like housework and personal care and and honestly, sometimes a job. I would urge you to lower your standards even further. Uh, dysfunctional but surviving with the heat on is a fine state for your house to be in for the next two years. It doesn't even have to be fully functional. Large chunks of it can just stop working completely. Yard work, fuck that shit. Send it out the door. Don't do any yard work for the next two years. Let your yard grow. Uh, But in general... The first large piece of advice I'd give to you is something that it seems like you've already you already naturally understand, and I would just urge you to continue embracing it, which is to recognize and accept that all the aspects of your life that perhaps ran one way, perhaps smoothly or beautifully before this baby, are going to run differently and are going to feel broken for a while, but that's totally okay and fine, and they will return to a level approaching normalcy as the years go on. The more that you can stop yourself from freaking out about the things that don't feel right and instead accept them as just being the way things are for now, the happier that you will be. Now, on this question of going back to work, um, this is a really fraught time for parents in general and moms in particular, this moment of my baby is still so tiny. My baby is just starting to, like, get fun, you know? Ten weeks is exactly the moment when your baby starts, like, just doing stuff, stuff, like smiling at you. It's just, like, not a meatloaf that shits in a diaper all the time. It's, like, an actual human creature. Um, And it's, like, a bummer to then be, like, this tiny thing who I'm just beginning to bond with. I now have to leave him for, you know, eight hours a day. Um, But but it sounds also like you are a person who legitimately – loves your job, who finds it, as you say, satisfying, who is doing good for people in the world. Um, And there is an element of joy and liberation at returning to the world whole, even after this amazing experience, and returning to the thing that you do that gives you at least some part of your identity, that puts you in the world in contact with and helping other people. And 
one way to start to become okay with the possibility, as you say, of returning to work is embracing the things that work gives you, not just the money, though the money is also great, but the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the completeness that that work can offer you. I just don't want you to discard that as you think about returning to this job that you profess to enjoy. So those are sort of macro things. I would also love to hear from Rebecca and Jamila about micro things that helped you when you all were coming back to this, to the working world uh, after maternity leave at this stage of life, whether they're about pumping or other sort of hacks to keep this balance working as well as you can. Well, I can tell you that one of the things that was interesting to me about this question also was that this new mom also has two stepkids yeah. that she's been co-parenting sort of handily uh, even before she had this baby and kind of balancing all these things. So I will tell you, maybe you just have those stepkids part time. So maybe it doesn't feel, feel quite as onerous. And, you know, they're not probably like in a full time daycare because they're school age and it's different. But you've already got a lot of the pieces here. And I just want to reiterate what Dan said uh, about enjoying the parts of your job that that you enjoyed before there mm-hmm. is nothing wrong with that and you are giving a gift to your kids if they see you immersed in a career that you find fulfillment in that you enjoy uh, if you have the kind of job where sometimes you lose track of time because you're enjoying what you're doing that is a gift and it's a gift to show your kids that that kind of career is possible so even though you're now faced with the um, very difficult and very practical issue of having to leave at a certain time to pick up your kid a certain time and you can't do that like the fact that you want to be there that's really, really good. And it is a really positive thing for your kids to see, uh, even if it's practically difficult. The second thing that I'll say is um, you're a nurse practitioner. I'm guessing that you work in a setting, either a hospital setting or a private practice setting, where you have a support staff there who can help you schedule your day and schedule around stuff. I promise you, uh, it would be really surprising to me if you were the first nursing mother to ever work at this practice or at this hospital. I would not hesitate to walk into work on the very first day and tell everyone you need to, whether it's your practice manager or your scheduler or your HR person or, you know, the perhaps the, the senior partner physician in your practice or senior partner nurse practitioner, just say, I'm really grappling with some of the logistics around this and I just need help. I need to know how other moms have done it. I want to sort of replicate a model that works. I don't want to try to like go this on my own and try to figure something out and then not be serving my patients well and helping all of you well and serving myself well. Like I I just, I need some structure. I need some help. It would probably be a huge relief to your colleagues if you just came out and said that because they probably have ideas or have a system or have thoughts and uh, it probably will give them an opportunity to step up and help you. So that would be the first thing that I would do. And I think it's it's important to know while you're doing that and while you're saying that is to also know that you are the hundred millionth, maybe even more than that, mom who has been in this exact same situation. You are not alone. If you talk to anybody else that you connect with through parent groups or your friends who've had babies or people at work who are recent parents, 
uh, you will find your people and you will find a tremendous sense of comfort in just talking to them about how they were able to manage at your specific workplace, you know, getting out of there at exactly 5.15 or whenever it is you have to leave, about building in those nursing breaks, about not feeling guilty about walking into a house with a sink full of dirty dishes. Because honestly, that is not important. And I, the thing that makes me feel really good about your question is that it really does seem like you have already figured out what's important. And I promise you that is 90% uh, of the problem. You are 90% of the way there. The rest is just list making, logistics, figuring out what to outsource, and figuring out what can just sit like your lawn. Maybe you can get a neighbor kid to do it for you for 20 bucks. Totally worth doing. You're on the right track. You are 90% there and you are not alone. I think that's great advice um, from both Dan and Rebecca. I would just add, you know, as somebody who also has no concept of time uh, and never has, scheduling things um, via your phone uh, or Apple Watch, perhaps, if you have it, um, is incredibly helpful. So, you know, I knew that I had to pump. T- uh, I-, I think I may- maybe tried to do it twice a day when I was um, nursing and only did it once a day when I was at work. But, um, you know, I-, I put a reminder on my phone and I had multiple alerts to go off. So, you know, I'd have to stop and silence that. Um, so I couldn't just forget to do it. And my phone was always attached to my hip. And, you know, it's part of my work. So, uh, other reminders related to all things baby going there can be helpful as well, including, you know, giving yourself reminders before you need to leave the office or right. You're saying I in the past could work and work and work all night, you know, um, without thinking about it. Obviously, you have to go to daycare now. So maybe the first one is say if it takes you 20 minutes to drive there, you get in and, and, you know, 10 minutes to get all your stuff uh, packed up before it's time to go that the first reminder maybe goes off an hour before it's time to go, you know, like, okay, it's now it's time for me to start wrapping things up and preparing to leave here. And then the next one is 30 minutes before it's time to go. It's like, okay, this is time for the last conversation, the last check in on a patient, Um, then it's 15 minutes, okay, and I need to pack my bag, get my milk out the refrigerator you know, change shoes, um, and I can get to the parking lot and get to the car on time and and make it to daycare. Uh, Yes, breast is best. However, it's not always possible for a mother to exclusively breastfeed um, or to breastfeed at all. And if you try and find that you have to either supplement uh, your milk with a formula, if you try and find that nursing does not work. And I don't mean try it at the hospital a couple of times and then maybe once or twice when you get home and give up. But I mean, really put forth the effort to uh, attempt to make breastfeeding the only or the primary source of nutrition for your baby. Uh, It's okay. It may not work for you and you may not be able to nurse as long as you'd want it. And that's okay. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, The one other thing I would add is, and this is a little bit of a follow-up to Rebecca's point about going in on your first day and being very upfront with people about needing help to figure this out and navigate it is if you can pull this off, if your position and your seniority and your experience allow it, be the person who has a baby in the office. Don't hide that baby. Don't feel like you're sneaking away. Don't be ashamed of leaving at five because you have to pick your baby up at daycare. Don't make excuses or apologize for how you're not available at a certain time because you're pumping. Be the person who is doing this thing and set the example for everyone in your workplace. Uh, It's going to benefit everyone in your workplace, and it's going to help you do this time management that you're so worried about. 
If you are not spending huge amounts of like emotional energy worrying about what everyone thinks about you and if instead you are upfront about this very human situation in which you find yourself and in which, as Rebecca notes, hundreds of millions of other women have found themselves, um, you are going to find it much easier to do the practical work of setting your schedule and making things happen when you need them to happen if you're not also fighting yourself about it and how you feel about it. I recognize this is not possible for everyone. It's not possible for huge numbers of people in all sectors of our economy. But if you're in a position at work where you can embrace that, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, even if you're talking through your the guilt that you feel, do it because that's going to make everything better for everyone else and for you. That's right. And also, you know, being a nursing mother, you know, not you don't have to be Norma Ray, but you are in a protected class and you shouldn't like wield that like a weapon. You should wear it like a beautiful outfit. Like you get to say, I need to go pump now. Yeah. Someone else is going to have to do this. You need you 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 have the ability to do that and, you know, as a as a health practitioner, you probably, you know, maybe do have the agency to sort of work your schedule around it. And as Dan says, it is really important to think about everybody that uh, comes after you and the work the hard work that you're doing to make it a better workplace for all the parents who are going to be working there in the years to come. All right. Good luck. Uh, to our listener. And once again, congratulations on your new baby. I hope you guys are really, really happy. And I hope your return to work goes great. Thanks for sending that question. Uh, it was sent via email. Once again, if you'd like to send us an email with a question, send it to mom and dad at slate.com. Here's our second question. It is once again, read by the inestimable Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad are fighting. I'm a cisgender female married to a cisgender male and we recently gave birth to a son. We both feel strongly about establishing a home with as little gender stereotyping as possible so our child feels accepted and loved regardless of his gender identification or sexual preferences later. We aren't so naive to think that our son will not be exposed to gender stereotyping in his life, but my question involves how to talk about this with family members, particularly our less-than-woke parents. Our son is seven weeks old, and already we're hearing joking comments like, well, he is male around things like eating and life centering around him. I find comments like these to be harmful. Not so much now, but in the long run, once our son is able to understand boys are expected to exhibit certain attributes. Do you have advice on how to broach the subject with our families? Do we wait to hear a comment and then correct, or do we bring it up independently? On a side note, both my husband and I are totally people-pleasers and are terrible at confrontation particularly with his ultra-sensitive mother. How do we put our foot down on this and continue to do so as our little guy, or whatever he identifies as later, gets older? Thanks. Well, you know, I I would say as someone who, um, I I think many of us, uh, and most of the folks that are writing in to us as parents are um, Gen Xers or millennials, and like you know, the generations before us, we are approaching parenting and family in ways that are oftentimes different than our parents. Um, You know, and and most of us are children of boomers. And that can be really tricky to navigate sometimes because we're using language um, such as cisgender and and talking about concepts that are not brand new, um, but we're not part of any sort of sustained national discourse. in mommy circles, on the news, really anywhere um, until quite recently. And so 
as we see some of our peers struggling to understand the importance of uh, affirming the ability of, uh, for children to um, identify their gender expression for themselves and, and wanting to raise them in ways that allow them to explore and, and, you know, make decisions and share things about who they are with us and for us to love and affirm and, and nurture them through that. Uh, certainly our, our parents and grandparents are even less equipped to um, understand some of the, uh, the, the reasons and, and the urgency behind doing that, unfortunately. So I think that considering that you and your partner are both um, non-confrontational and, and tend to be people pleasers and do not want to upset or, or frustrate your parents, um, and that this sounds like the sort of conversation that's going to be really difficult to have with these particular uh, family members that, that you've described. Um, I would not say let's bring this um, to them before something ha has been said, you know, but it, but rather when someone makes a comment about, well, you know, he's a he's a growing boy and, you know, boys love to eat or, you know, well, of course he's doing that because that's what boys do. That in that moment, you as best as you can gently say, hey, you know, we really want Stephen to um we don't want Stephen to feel that there's anything he has to do or should do or, or does because he's a boy. Um, and I know that may be a little bit different than how you're used to operating, but we just ask that you try to refrain from saying things like that, particularly when he's old enough to hear it. Because it's one thing for, you know, someone to look at a, a three-month-old baby and say, yeah, look at that little guy. He's got quite the appetite. You know, maybe he's going to play football. And another for someone to say that to a three-year-old child who can hear it. And I would, um, in the interest of picking my battles wisely, uh, I think that with people that may be closer to your peer group, um, folks that are going to be part of your day-to-day -day life, it, it's easier to have or maybe more urgent to have a conversation, you know, from the beginning about let's talk about parenting philosophy and, and why this is important to us um, and why we do not want to engage in gender stereotyping. We don't want to raise a, a little boy who is violent or aggressive or feels that he's inadequate if he doesn't take a natural interest in sports or, or having crushes on girls or if he wants to do things that are, you know, traditionally associated with girls and femininity. Um, you know, we, we simply... We don't want to do that. We don't want to limit him those ways. Simply manage your expectations. You know your loved ones. You know who's going to take issue with or be just horribly confused and, and uh, devastated to, to hear these things and, and who's going to be able to at least try and, and be on board with you. And focus on, you know, your conviction that you know you're doing the right thing for your child and, and how you will speak to him about these issues, I think, is ultimately going to be more impactful and more important than how um, these other uh, family members and, and folks around you will engage him. That's a really crucial point. Um, yes, that, the, that it's him that matters in the end and how you talk to him. You're going to have way more of an impact than any of these people, no matter what. Um, I'm interested in this answer, Jamila, and I agree with so much of it, but I think I disagree a, a little with one tenant, and I am interested for Rebecca to be the tiebreaker on this one. Um, I don't think that you have to necessarily continue that talk with your parents into the realm of 
this is how we feel and we don't want to make gender essential statements in this house and this is why it's important to us even gently even kindly i think you have a little time before you need to do that necessarily especially if you're a person who's doesn't love confrontation especially if you have an ultra sensitive mother-in-law um i think there's maybe a way around that you know if you're I don't know, Rebecca Lavoie, who loves confrontation with her mother, maybe you just go ahead and do it right away. (laughs) But I don't think you have to. You have a solid two years before your baby is going to have any recognition of what the hell is going on at all, probably even honestly a little bit more than that. So you've got those two years to spend exhibiting for your parents and for anyone else of that older generation who likes to talk about babies in a certain way the way that you want to talk about gender in your house and to your child, you can exhibit that in all the things that you do. And I'm sure you already are exhibiting this in all the ways that you live in the way that you dress that baby and the way you talk about that baby and the way you think about that baby. Um, And you can do that. You can exhibit that behavior on a day-to-day basis while correcting the stray comment that comes in with as sort of airy and light a touch as possible, right? Well, He is a male. Well, he's a baby. All babies love to eat, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. You don't necessarily then have to go the next step from there to, and it's very important to us to talk this way because we don't want to raise a child who believes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would just suggest that you can, you might be really surprised how much that can sink in if grandparents hear that every time they're in your house. And every time they make a comment like that, and they hear it without judgment, they hear it without reprimand, but they see you exhibiting that as lightly and as charmingly and as sweetly as possible. And a lot of grandparents will just start to adopt that phrasing, even if they kind of think it's silly, even if they kind of don't get it, they'll just do it because they'll get that those are the rules. Now, that's not true of everyone. It's not true of every grandparent. There are plenty of grandparents who will hear that once and they'll be like, what are you talking about? You don't believe that a boy should be big and strong and then you got to get into it with them. But a lot of grandparents will. And if two years from now they're not, maybe then sit them down and have that conversation and talk to them about why it's important. But if you're really allergic to confrontation or you really think it will damage that relationship, this is maybe one other alternate route. But what do you think, Rebecca? I think that this writer inner is coming to this question with a lot of unsaid things from previous interactions Mm. uh, with these parents. And I think it's really coloring her sense of how this could go. Uh, with a seven week old, it does seem early to be, you know, worrying this degree about these things. Although good for her for like being proactive about it, thinking about it, you know, her philosophy of parenting around, you know, gender and keeping every door open and opening up all these possibilities. But I am guessing there have been interactions before that have not gone well, uh, which are waving her off and helping her try to script the interaction that she really wants to have around this because she's carrying some worry about something that has previously occurred. So uh, what I would suggest, and this is really hard to do, um, trust me, I know that it's hard to do because I try to do it all the time and it's one of the hardest things I do, but it often pays off the most, is to, when you find yourself in one of these interactions that is directly counter to everything that you've decided A, that you want for your baby, but that B is also going to be problematic with your grandparents, with with your baby's grandparents and your relationship around raising the baby. 
Go into those situations with a fully open heart to the possibility that these people have nothing but the best intentions. They may be wrong. They may be saying stereotypical and stupid things, but they are coming into it with love and with good intentions. And what happens when you decide that that's what's happening is it really can change the way you communicate back in the moment. You might find yourself saying instead of, hey, I really don't like that expression. Uh, it, it means this and it means this and it means this and it's going to set up our kid for all sorts of issues around gender later. You can say, hey, what do you mean by that? Um, because when I hear it, I hear this and you know it makes me uncomfortable because of this. When you assume good intentions, you find yourself asking more questions than you do leaping to confrontation. And you often find yourself in a situation where the confrontations you most fear are actually not necessary because when you assume good intentions, it opens the path to like a real conversation about it that can happen organically rather than having to be planned at some brunch that you're like dreading for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so the, the advice I would give us. We're having exactly. the gender brunch. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you're both right that the best thing to do here is to demonstrate your own parenting to the people that are going to be interacting with your kid and demonstrate it hard and fast and feel free to just like draw lines around what you do and your kid will embody your values. That is typically what happens. Um, but then in those moments where things get uncomfortable, snap out of the mindset of, oh God, oh God, this is going to be some sort of confrontation that I'm dreading and I don't know what to say and should we do it now or should we do it later? Snap out of that mindset and try to get into a mindset where you're thinking, hey, listen, grandma just thinks she's being funny. Uh, grandma thinks that uh, this is the way that we talk about babies in 2019. So let's just like assume that she loves my baby and is trying to be funny and trying to make everyone at the table laugh. And let's take it from there and see what happens. That's what I would do. Uh, I think that's really good advice. Uh I'm going to say that you basically agreed with me, but I don't know if that's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you actually also agree with me, Dan, because I know I rambled a little bit. But for the record, I said I don't think you need to have a serious con uh, confrontation, um, particularly with the grandparents. Definitely not a confrontation. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. it, it, you know, as things come up, you can just kind of redirect the language, yeah. but that you don't right now because the baby's so young, you know, you don't really need to have a conversation about parenting pedagogy. Um, unless it's with somebody else that's going to have extended amount of time with your kid too. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, all right. Good luck to you, uh, listener. Um, you are indeed more than woke, unlike your parents. Great job. We're very proud of you for the job that you were doing raising um, this young gentleman, whatever gender he ends up identifying with. Um, thank you for writing in. Once again, if you'd like advice from us, write us at slate.com or go to the Slate Parenting Facebook page and leave a question there. It now is the time on the show when we choose items or concepts and recommend them to you. It's a little part I like to call recommendations. Rebecca, would you like to start? <laughs> so creative. <laughs> Yes, uh, I would like to start with a new cooking staple that I have in my house this autumn, which my uh, BFF Molly introduced to me. I uh, I do like to cook and bake, but I, like a lot of people, don't have a lot of time to do the kind of like cooking and baking that I uh, love to do, especially this time of year, because I live in the country and we live down the road from an orchard and we've got like apples and like fresh peaches at our disposal. So last weekend, my friend Molly brought over this like 
incredible. Uh, we just had this like spontaneous get together in my house that we didn't even plan in advance. So I was like, how did you do this? But she brought over this incredible um, fruit tart, which was just like fresh peaches and brown sugar and fresh blueberries and stuff and this incredible pastry. And she was just like, yeah, I just buy the puff pastry in the tube at the grocery store. It's really awesome. So my recommendation is, and my kids loved it and everybody there loved it. So my recommendation is uh, to go to the specialty food section of your grocery store, the refrigerated section, run, don't walk, get yourself some of the puff pastry. It comes like in this weird like tube container and you can use it to make all sorts of incredible things that people will be really impressed by that your kids will love that you can like use up all the fresh fruit sitting on your counter that's about to like get flies and stuff uh peaches blueberries plums apples whatever you've got lying around you can throw in a puff pastry so good so i'm going to uh provide a link to some very simple recipes that i found using this said pre-cooked puff pastry and that is my recommendation for this week run don't walk puff pastry time Fall fruit season is a great time to invest in some puff pastry uh, and make some various desserts. The only problem with that puff pastry uh, is that I, I just don't like the exploding tubes. The exploding tubes freak me out. You know, like you tear the wrapper <laughs> off and then you press your thumb in there and then it's like, wham! And I, I have to make my wife open it. It's too scary. Okay. That's like the, the Pillsbury rolls do that too, yes, right? Too it's like scary. Very fr- it's like opening a bottle of champagne. Too much suspense. Right. Or a party or like one of those party poppers. Like it's going to go blow up. The jack in the box is going to explode. It's too much. Too many scares. Too many jump scares in my kitchen. Um, I'm going to recommend today an extremely good obituary. Uh, this obituary was published this week in the Hartford Current. Um, it is for a guy named Joe Heller, not Joseph Heller, the novelist, but just some dude named Joe Heller who worked in like a chemical factory for a while and was on the school board. Uh, he died September 8th at the age of 82 in Centerbrook, Connecticut. The obituary is written by his three daughters. It is packed with great stories, and it is a remarkable tribute to a guy who just sounds like an absolute and total fucking weirdo. Uh, I'm going to read two representative passages. Uh, These are very short passages from a very long obituary. Passage one. Joe was a self-taught chemist and worked at Cheeseboro Ponds, where he developed one of their first cosmetic lines. There he met the love of his life, Irene, who was hoodwinked into thinking he was a charming individual with decorum. Boy, was she ever wrong. Joe embarrassed her daily with his mouth and choice of clothing. That's number one. Number two. Joe was a frequent shopper at the Essex dump, and he left his family with a house full of crap, 300 pounds of birdseed, and dead houseplants that they have no idea what to do with. If there was ever a treasure that he snatched out from under you among the mounds of junk, please wait the appropriate amount of time to contact the family to claim your loot. We're available tomorrow. Anyway, (laughs) it is an incredible obituary, because the longer you read it, the more you realize just how much love these three daughters had for their hilarious, gross father. I ended up crying at the end of this obituary, and I dream of living the kind of life that would spur my daughters to write 1,500 completely insane words in the local newspaper when I croak. It is completely great. I will put a link on the show page. I recommend Joe Heller's obituary. Joe Heller... I'm sorry I never met you, except for that apparently if I met you, you would bake sweet rolls that look like piles of shit and serve them to me at breakfast, according to your obituary. 
Uh, Jamila, what do you recommend? Dan, I'm sure when you pass away, your children are going to write a wonderfully ridiculous obituary. I better get 2,000 words. <laughs> I would like to recommend the game Heads Up. Um, I may be extremely late to the party on this, and, I, and I've played it with friends of mine um, in the past and played other games like it, but my daughter recently got hooked on it. And it's, the, you know, I'm sure you all have seen it. It's a game that got popular from Ellen's show where – you know, there, there's a number of trivia categories, and there's only a few that would be um, appropriate for most children. We've tried the celebrity one, and my daughter looked at me like, who are these white folks? I don't know any of these names. Um, like Frank but, Sinatra was one of them. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's just so much fun. And they have, a, they have a category specific for children, and then they have a general one that's pretty simple. You know, it may be something like it's like it's like playing charades you know you've got your phone on top of your forehead and the phrase is there and the person you're playing with is trying to get you to guess it without saying the words and and my kid will absolutely say some of the words from the phrase sometimes but it's cute and endearing and we have a ton of fun playing it and it's something that we can do in ubers while waiting for dinner at a restaurant or in the doctor's office um, waiting to be called it has been a godsend It, it fills gaps of silence it allows us to be actively engaged with one another. It is a lot of fun. Heads Up is a great game uh, for little kids and bigger kids too. Uh, It is also great because it's the rare game that uh, if you are willing, if you and another parent are willing to give up your phones for a few minutes, um, two kids who really don't know each other that well and are still trying to figure out like what to do with each other can instantly dive into Like Harper has played this game during car rides with boys who she had to share a car with. And they have successfully played this game across the backseat and had a great time doing it. It's like they instantly fall into it and get it. And I would would definitely second this recommendation. There's also the um, the like board game version headbands where there's actually like little things that you there's cards that you pull out and then you put them into actual physical headbands that you wear and these all of course are derived from uh, what Alia's family has forever called the toilet paper game in which you just write the name of a thing on a piece a long strip of toilet paper and then tie it around someone's head like a like a samurai headband. Yeah. Um, so you can play it even if you don't have buy the app. But the app is great for just kids to like kill 10 minutes with or for you to kill 10 minutes with them. Yes, I would definitely second that recommendation. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on the air, once again, leave us a message. 424-255-7833. Email us at slate.com. And of course, please join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook.com. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Just Jupiter. For Jamila Lemieux and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. Hello, Slate Plus listeners. Thank you so much for being members of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Your support helps us do all 